0: This is a concealed carry podcast, episode number four thirty nine. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the Concealed dot com network. I am your host Riley Bowman, joined today by Matthew Marister. What is greetings? Up? gray goat although the beard is to come back a little bit yeah
1: don't say anything because I, I, I don't want it to get out there that, you know. we I'm don't want to tip off the wife in. yeah she hasn't looked at me for a couple of days no um, yeah I just haven't shaved right so I'm just kind of <laughs> growing it in a little bit maybe I can buy off like keeping it short I don't
0: know uh, so maybe we'll get gray, gray beard back <laughs> Because uh, gray beard sounds better than than gray goat, I think.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Unless we're saying, you know, greatest of all time, you know, gray goat, greatest of all time, uh, right? Sure. Concealed carrying shooter dude, Matthew Marister. Yeah, so not even close. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's not going to fit.
0: Anyway, welcome to the show, folks. Uh, today's episode, we're doing the ultimate concealed carry beginner's guide. It's been we were just talking like 150 or 160 episodes since we last did the episode or the the uh, the fourth installment of the Ultimate Concealed Carry Beginners Guides and and they were quite popular. Uh, why we didn't do a number five, a part five, I I don't know necessarily. <laughs> other than um, you know today we had that realization. Oh, we should we we should do a part five, and we have some other ideas to include in that list and so here we are looking forward to it and stay stay you know stay tuned Uh, we got some interesting topics we're going to talk about uh one eye versus two eye shooting we're going to talk about iron sights uh, how to bomb proof your iron sights talk about red dots somewhat we're going to talk about holster clips uh kind of do an update we actually talked about some of that stuff in a previous ultimate concealed carry beginner's guide uh, we're talking talk about quick access storage options, long-term, short-term uh, maintenance. Uh, so all kinds of good stuff today. But today's episode is sponsored and brought to you by the new color edition. Uh, it's a brand new product from EDC Belt Company, the foundation belt in an all-new color. So up until now, they've only done black. And you know what? You guys asked for it, and they finally have listened, and they, they have launched an additional color, uh, this new color. Actually, I have the distinction and, and privilege of having named it. Uh, hmm. The goal was for it to be an FDE color, but they treat this, they treat their belt with a special UV coat coating of sorts to help maintain the color uh, and that sort of thing, and so it doesn't fade over time and that uv coating actually like gives the belt up a little bit of a it's almost like a how do you describe it almost like color changing it's like a chameleon you know huh. like you look at it in one light and it's like it looks tan it looks like fd classic flat dark dark earth kind of color and then you look at it in another light and it looks green sort of so um so you know what we decided to call it the desert sage color i think it goes great with tan pants FTE colored pants, brown pants, uh, or or just regular blue jeans too. But check out the new Desert Sage color option from EDC Belt Company in their Foundation Belt, which is my belt of choice. That's been my go-to EDC Belt for the last, oh, I don't know, a good, a good while now. So and I'm very happy with the EDC Belt Company Foundation Belt. So check it out, guys. Go to concealedcarry.com. Forward slash foundation belt. That'll take you right to the webpage and you can. Well, maybe 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 you're not interested in the desert sage color. You can pick up a black one, but you can check out the new desert sage color there on the site. Also, today's episode sponsored brought to you by our brand new ear and eye pro combo pack. So, uh, you know, this is a good way to get started for a lot of you newer shooters, especially, or even if you're just looking for another set of eye pro and ear pro, uh, particularly electronic ones, this is a great cost-effective way of getting started. What it is, is we've combined an SSP eyewear set of, uh, clear glasses, good quality. You know what they they last a long time. They're strong. They don't break easily. Really good eye pro, uh, you know, inexpensive but very cost-effective, high value. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the SSPI wear. And then also that this combo pack comes with, so it comes with the SS, SSPI wear glasses to protect your eyes. And then the ear pro is the new Allen company. Um, oh shoot. I lost the name of it here. Allen shockwave electronic low profile shooting earmuffs. This is a new product. You know what? They look great. I tried a pair of them the other day. They're super comfortable. Uh, They are low profile, so they work pretty good even with running a rifle or that sort of thing. But the key is is that they're electronic hearing protection. So, you know, they they protect your ears when the gunshots are going off, but they amplify your ambient uh, environmental noise and talking and speech and so forth so that you can hear everything around you. You can hear range commands. They're great for taking classes and being able to hear the instructor. But when the shooting starts, they cut out the noise and, and allow you to protect your ears. Uh, so I'm a big fan of electronic hearing protection. Uh, most of the time I'm wearing mine on the range and I forget I have it on because you get so used to hearing. You know, It's almost like having hearing aids and I don't really need, need hearing aids uh, yet, but uh, you can hear everything so good. But then like I said, it protects your ears when it needs to. So check out the new iPro Ear Pro Combo Pack on the ConcealedCarry.com website. Go to ConcealedCarry.com forward slash PPE Combo Pack. PPE, you know, personal protective equipment, right? This is, that's what this is, iPro Ear Pro. So check out the ConcealedCarry.com forward slash PPE Combo Pack and uh, get started today. It's uh, less than 50 bucks less than 50 bucks. That's a heck of a value for electronic hearing protection and shooting glasses all in one pack. All right. Ultimate concealed carry beginner's guide. Matthew. Yes, sir. It's been like said, you know, it's been like a year and a half since we did episode number four of this edition. Yes. We were young men back then. Yeah. You know, you're so much grayer <laughs> and I'm so much fatter. <laughs> So, what do we have on the docket today? Well, uh, I think where we're going to start is talking about one-eyed versus two-eyed shooting. This is a common question, particularly when I hear from from beginning-type shooters quite often. Uh, You know, they wonder about it. Maybe they heard, oh, I'm supposed to use two eyes, but I find I'm only using one, uh, that sort of thing. Or maybe they've never even thought about it. Uh, I know there was a time where, my earlier days of shooting a pistol, I had no idea if I had both eyes open or closed one of my eyes or sometimes maybe even close both my eyes when the gun went off because, you know, you you flinch a little bit or something. So you've got to work that out of your system. But uh, tell me your thoughts, Matthew, on one eyed versus two eyed shooting.
1: Yeah. So uh, I'm kind of the same boat as you is, um, uh, you know, when when people come through through the classes and stuff and you're teaching newer shooters it's almost when you tell them you're going to shoot with two eyes open, it's almost like, what are you talking about? This is like, they've never even heard about it. And it's, it's not uncommon because, you know, when you're teaching somebody how to shoot initially, part of that teaching is how to use the sights and getting, you know, uh, good shot groups and things like that. Right. So yeah, when you close your eye, you can, differentiate that or you can look at the sights a little bit crisper right and so um you know there is kind of like that learning curve as you're learning you're learning to close one eye um I, I know back in the day a lot of competition shooters would even like black out one of their um lenses on their shooting glasses so like they wouldn't you know they would um close one eye and so it when you tell people defensive shooting we try to keep both of our eyes open, um, because of multitude of reasons, um, it it blows our mind, but one of the biggest, I'll throw one big reason why, um, you should want to shoot with, you know, both of your eyes open is obviously that tunnel vision, um, and being able to see around you because now, you know, we're not just trying to shoot a bullseye. We're trying to shoot, create distance, escape, look at avenues of escape or other, uh, other threats. So, um, keeping both eyes open allows you to see much more of, uh, much more of the field, so to speak, so. Uh,
0: I agree. Um, Yes, that uh, I think ideally we we shoot with two eyes open with a pistol, uh, especially in a defensive context. Uh, Even in a competitive context, you know, if you're thinking of it in that way too, uh, action shooting in particular, you know, you're running around with a pistol, running and gunning, shooting USPSA or even IDPA. Uh, for me, I think it's helpful to be able to see a little bit more of the field, uh, navigate things. Um, so ideally I think shooting with two eyes open is, is probably the best approach. Uh, but however, I know of a few very high level shooters that shoot with one eye only. Mm -hmm. In fact, we had one of them on the podcast, BJ Norris, world champion shooter, he shoots with one eye, right? Now we talked about that. I think a little bit in the episode I did with him, where you know he navigates, he runs, you know, he goes from position A to position B and so on and so forth with all you know both eyes open, uh, taking in all that visual information. But when he's getting down on a target, looking down his sights, uh, he tends to close his non-dominant eye. Or actually, he might be cross-eyed. I don't remember. But he closes his his uh, left eye because he's shooting right-handed and. Using his right eye to align the sights and everything on the target. So, and I think that's true with him. Even with red dot, I think he still closes his one eye even when he's shooting with a red dot, hmm. which that's a bit unusual too. Because the, the whole thing with a red dot is it completely allows you to stay target focused and to sort of superimpose that red dot on your target, and you could see more of the target and see that super you know imposed image of your red dot when you've got both eyes open. I think a little bit better. But here's the thing what I've come to the conclusion of whatever works the best for a shooter, I think is, you know, I, I hate saying that sometimes because it's not always, um, sometimes it can be a little bit of a cop out to say, you know, whatever works for you. Right. Uh, but, but I think in this case it is sort of that way because the one thing that's really tricky about eyesight is that it's it, even with all the medical technology, doctors, uh, science and everything like what we have, nobody knows what it looks like to look through your eyes, right? And there's no way for, for I can't, I cannot experience what it's like to look through Matthew's eyes, and Matthew's eyes may be totally different than Riley's eyes, mm-hmm. right? And like there's there's varying degrees of eye dominance. Some shooters uh, have a very very dominant, you know, say right eye in the case of a right hand shooter. Uh, and, and their left eye is not very dominant at all. Some shooters are right-handed but have a very dominant left eye, and that you know causes some, some challenges and some struggles. Um, I think it was Mark commenting here uh, in the comments on Facebook saying how, you know, he struggles a little bit with this, being a little bit cross eye dominant. Some shooters have a dominance, but it's not super strong, uh, you know, that both eyes are a little bit more equal. And see that all plays a part in all of this, and, and changes things. And so, for some shooters, it, if particularly where they have a very, very, very dominant uh, uh, eye, it, uh, particularly cross eye, like ra- you know, rather than them tilting their head to align that not that uh, that offhand eye with the sights or something like that, they might choose to close that dominant eye, that cross dominant eye, and then shoot with that one eye that's on their on their dominant hand side Uh, because just depending on the shooter that might make it a little bit easier for them so um, again i i come back to i think that in an ideal world it works a little better uh taking in as much visual information as we can but don't forget that even if we do decide that what's best for us is to maybe close the one eye or squint an eye or something like that it doesn't mean that we can't pop that o- eye back open when we need to look around and see things and stuff sure so you know there's there's a lot of different approaches uh to this to this concept i mean any any additional thoughts or um you know points you want to make on that
1: no i mean you covered it really well i think um you know sometimes we get dogmatic and like you must shoot with both eyes open or if you ever close one eye you know you're you're wrong and and nothing really is absolute like that when it comes to shooting. Some things are right. But like for the most part um, uh, everybody's especially their eyes, the way they perceive things are different. So,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I would say that at one time I was a bit dogmatic on this as well, you know, being, I still am somewhat strongly opinionated that I, I, I like two eyes um, but I recognize that it doesn't work as well for everybody. And again, that's just because I think there's so much variance from person to person in terms of how their eyes work. Um, and you kind of touched on how, you know, by closing one eye, it does make it a little bit easier to see the sights clearly, to not, we don't have any double images going on, uh, less distraction. Uh, it's a little simpler to get that front sight and focus, um, you know. So so there, there's all of that. At work, and those are all good things. I find that the shooters that really struggle learning to shoot with both eyes open are particularly, it is particularly that way when they grew up learning on and shooting rifles.
1: 100%. Uh,
0: and, yeah. And that's how it was for me. You know, I spent a lot of my childhood, my youth shooting. 22s and BB guns and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and with a rifle, especially the iron sights, it makes all the sense in the world to close that eye that is not being used to aim. And, you know, it, it works really great in a rifle context. Um, But again, I do like to, even with my iron sights, I am starting to be, to learn to be a little bit more target focused uh and using my irons and it's just easier to do that it's easier to be target focused and what your your goal is to have a superimposed image of whether it's your iron sights or it's your dot and your red dot uh it's easier to 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 get that at least for me it is when i have both eyes open because the left eye in my case is taking it's seeing that entire target image uh and and then the right eye is the one of course that's doing the job of superimposing that that sight over top of that. So um, now talking about uh, about sites, right? Um, this, is, this is a bit of a segue into that. And we're going to touch on red dots some more here. So stay tuned. But Matthew, uh, I, I put in here, let's talk about bomb-proofing iron sites. Mm-hmm. I'd like for you to share an experience that you've either had personally or where you've seen Iron sights on a pistol come loose.
1: Yeah. So I don't know if you, you. I know you didn't know this because I don't, I don't think I told you, but um, I have on my EDC gun, I was uh, doing some uh, basic just like uh, demonstrations of using your firearm as an impact weapon. And I sheared off or I broke off uh, a front sight on my gun uh, doing that. Now I was, was repeatedly doing and stuff, and I knew that it, it could happen, right? Um, but it broke off, and I, I and I seen sights, uh, iron sights, um, on people's firearms, dr- especially the rear sight drift one way or the other in classes, and they don't perceive it uh they don't pick it up and so all of a sudden they're shooting way off and they're like I don't know what's wrong with my gun something's off you you pick up the gun you shoot and you're like it is off and then you look and oh the the sight drifted off or it's way drift uh, it's way off or um you know they're they're doing something funky with their grip and so they adjust their sight because they're shooting way to the left, you know, they're anticipating or something they're shooting low into the left. So they drift the site over because they think it's something with the gun. And then you start correcting those habits. And now all of a sudden they're not shooting straight. So um, yeah. Iron sights they're not, it sounds iron sights like, oh, okay, you know, they're never going anywhere, but they do. And um, you need to be aware of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, this is a huge myth that we hear often used to explain why a person is resistant to the idea of putting a red dot on their pistol. They'll say, you know, well, it could fail on you in in a moment of need, and my irons never fail me. But as we have, you know, Mark here commenting on Facebook, his Glock 26 front sight got loose the other week, he says. Uh, I have seen far more iron sight failures then I have red dot failures, right? Now, sample size is larger on the side of the iron sights for sure. But more and more, we're seeing more and more red dots on on students' pistols, uh, on pistols of other students, fellow students in classes that I'm taking myself. Um, Like the uh, Dave Spalding course I was in a few weeks ago, we had several students in that class running red dots on their guns. And the the class I took from Dave Spalding last year, I think only had one student with a red dot. So just in one year, uh, and it was, and there was some, some of the same, same group of shooters is a local, you know, class local to me here in Colorado. So we had a lot of the same guys in that class. And so just in one year we went from like one to like, you know, four or five guys running red dots including myself, I was shooting an iron sight gun last year. So, um, point is starting to see more and more red dots and iron sights. The, the reality is, is they do in fact fail. Um, they, you know, even on factory-installed ones, they come loose. I've seen uh, the sights on uh, Smith and Wesson M and shields. I've seen Glocks, particularly front sights on Glocks, uh, as you've noted, as Mark has noted. Uh, I've seen the rear sights on Sig's drift. I've seen FN's drift. They all do it. It's not that one manufacturer over over another is doing a better job necessarily with their site channels and and how they're installed and QC and QA and all that. Uh, it's just that, you know, it, it's a relatively small object that's subjected to a lot of abuse, a lot of reciprocation, and it sits in this relatively narrow channel that, you know, we're talking about machining tolerances that are very, very, I mean, it's so tight, it has to be so spot on for things to stay in place. And even then, most sites that are installed use some kind of lock type. Yeah. And that's what I'm getting to, okay, is how do you bond-proof your sites? Uh, I recommend you, you you take a look at your sites, you check them out regularly. If you have cheap sites, by the way, not a bad idea to consider replacing them. And when you replace them, really do it right. Follow the, rec- the manufacturer's recommendations. Uh, like, for instance, some people will choose to put a, I don't know, Dawson precision sights on their gun. Dawson has very, very specific instructions about how to install their sights and what Loctite to use. Like, it's I think it's a different Loctite for the front versus the rear, even in their it's case. Fine. Whereas in, you know, some cases like uh, XS sights gives you a red Loctite. And be careful, even though something is red versus blue, it depends on the manufacturer. They're not all the same. They're not, not all created equally. But I know a common Loctite that's used as to, rec, you know, that's recommended for securing sites with is uh, Loctite 262, which is the medium to high strength uh, Loctite brand, um, uh, uh, Loctite. And that is, that is red in color. And so, like, when you're installing some sites, they recommend you actually put that Loctite all the way around the perimeter of the site as it sits in the, in the site channel. Mm-hmm. And then you let it sit and you let it cure and That's another important thing. People sometimes uh, uh, don't let them cure, uh, you know, properly, or they use too much, or they use too little Loctite, uh, or they use the wrong stuff. You know, all 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 those sorts of things, right? Uh, you got to degrease things properly, right? It's it's common to have grease on a pistol or oils because you're maintaining, cleaning, oiling, etc. Your your gun to keep you know, to keep it rust free and to keep it operating. Well, you need to make sure that the site channel and everything is completely grease-free uh, before you install the site and then use Loctite, right? So you see, there's all these things. So so basically what it comes down to is, um, you know, checking your sites, you know, keeping an eye on them. Uh, if they're factory installed, not a bad idea to um, even, you know, in some cases use some of that red Loctite um, around them and, and just kind of help, Make sure they stay locked in place. Some sites have little set screws, right? Mm-hmm. And just making sure those are torqued down periodically. Uh, if if a manufacturer has torque values that you should use, well, you should probably follow those. And those set screws should be probably using Loctite as well. See, so so that's what you know. We we want to really look at those fronts at, or at those iron sites because they fail more often than people realize. And I'll tell you, that's the thing. In the case of a red dot and I have backup irons, well, I have a fallback plan. In the case of just having iron sights on your gun, your iron sight flies off, drifts out of the notch or whatever, then you're, you're hosed. You got, you know, you, you're, you have to resort to basically really gross sight picture stuff, putting my gun somewhere on target or relying on point shooting. And neither of those are, are ideal in some contexts.
1: Yeah. I I would just add one thing. Uh, I know sometimes people are hesitant to put the Loctite on their rear sight if it's non-adjustable because they want to get out and confirm that, you know, it's not, it might look, if you're eyeballing it, or if you're using a sight tool, you might not know exactly that it's center and you want to go shoot and confirm that, Hey, it's not grossly adjusted or something. And that's fine. That set screw probably is good enough to, to put some, you know, a few rounds uh, uh, through there. You probably, if you didn't Loctite it and you never shot the gun and never fall off, right? But um, you could probably put enough rounds through it to confirm that, hey, I don't need to adjust it. Once it's there, then put the Loctite on, let it cure, and then you're good to go.
0: Yep. Yep. There you go. And, th- and that's the process I followed where I'll install a sight, uh, particularly the rear sight, and uh, take it, test fire it, see if it's close enough. And if, or, you know, if it's on, and if it's on, then then I use the Loctite. Uh, if it needs a little more adjustment, you know, and that's definitely a situation where I, I like to take my sight tool with me to the range.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that, that'd be actually a little thing that a lot of beginners probably don't think about, about having a sight tool. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of an investment, and it probably doesn't make sense for every gun owner, but first... Someone like me that has multiple guns and has replaced sights on most of my guns, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the ones that get used regularly, uh, it's been a good you know good investment to have that sight tool. Uh, especially again, so if I go to the range, I can I can you know push things a little bit over to the left, to the right, whatever I need to to get things dialed in.
1: Um, and they're not extremely expensive. You could get a, a pretty decent sight tool, maybe like 40 forty, fifty bucks for for a you know a, a sight. Tool that presses it out. You don't have to use a punch or anything. And then if you have friends that shoot, you'll make more friends if you have a, a mm-hmm. if you can install sites, because everybody will come to you yeah. and be like, hey, man, can you, you know, the guy at the street wants to charge me 50 bucks to put them in. I could do it in like five minutes. Come here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So.
0: And, and I, I cringe when I see people hammering on sites with, with punches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It, it usually doesn't go very well and things end up being marred. And yeah. So anyway, um, also, Mark, your comments that he's learned that the front that the front sight screws on the Glocks are pretty pretty terrible. It's true; they're they're very very small, very finely threaded screws. Uh, yeah, very important that you use some Loctite on those uh, on those as well. Anyway, so uh, we got to move on. Let's talk about red dots, though, real quick. So another little bit of a segue. Um, those of you who've been following the podcast for a while have followed my own personal journey. And know that uh, in the last, oh, I don't know, I, I don't really keep a you know, track on a calendar or anything. But uh, probably almost the last year, I've really been a lot heavier into the red dot on my pistol, uh, on my carry pistol. And, well, it's probably a little bit more than a year ago. I started uh, playing with that a little bit, carrying it from time to time, practicing, that sort of thing. Uh, now I, I'm, I'm all in on the red dot and I am convinced that it is the superior sighting uh, option. Uh, I know there's people with varying degrees of opinions on that, but uh, it it simplifies things so much for the shooter. I think Uh, as far as the shooting is concerned, as far as, you know, put dot on target, don't move, press trigger. Right. And like, Assuming things are sighted in, that's where my bullet goes is where that dot is located. It can't get much easier than that as far as the aiming and the shooting and your target focus the entire time. There's none of this shifting focus from target to sight to target to sight to target to sight, you know, that's that sort of thing. Uh, you just look at the target and you put the dot on, you press the trigger. It is so simple. Now, where it's not so simple is people have a hard time sometimes finding the dot. And that's where presentation and the draw and everything, you know, really needs a lot of a lot of work, a lot of repetitions. Uh, it's not uh, particularly. I think if I could start with somebody that's a little bit more fresh and doesn't have a lot of like a newer shooter that doesn't have a lot of bad habits, and I if I can walk them through the all the steps of drawing and presenting a gun, uh, you know, I think that's a lot easier than taking someone that has developed frankly some bad habits i mean they worked when they were shooting an iron sighted gun because the thing is is we're presenting out with the iron sights we can start seeing things are a little bit out of whack and we we automatically make those corrections as we're finishing our presentation we don't get that luxury quite so you know readily in the case of a red dot so um so there, that's basically what it comes down to. It, really, there's there's two main complaints or or challenges of red dots. One is with finding the dot reliably and consistently, um, but that could be addressed and addressed with training, and it doesn't necessarily have to be very painful or difficult. It just you know we need to spend some reps and get some put some time in doing it. And the second thing is, well, what if it fails on you? Well, as we just established, iron sights can fail, right? Um, I, I definitely believe in the context of a, of a defensive pistol. I know you agree with me on this, Matthew, that if you're going to have a red dot on the pistol, you should have backup iron sights. Sure. Um, and, and there you go. I mean, at least in the case of running a red dot on a pistol, you have a backup option as we just covered. You don't have backup unless you have backup irons for your, for your irons on your pistol. (laughs) Nobody does though. Right. Right, right. That'd be kind of silly. I don't even know how that would work. I, I, I guess you know you've probably seen the the meme or the joke of the of the <laughs> yeah. sight mounted on the side of the gun, like the gangster right, version. Right, you know, right. Glock. Yeah. Uh, I guess you could do that. You could have some normal sights on the top of the slide, and you could have some milled on the side. and Then you have a backup option.
1: <laughs> it's not a bad idea. You know, someone's going to going to do that now, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, Elke mentions that Sage Dynamics just started a new series for the RDS beginner. I actually just watched one of his videos yesterday. Uh, maybe it's the first one. I don't remember exactly, uh, but I just saw one yesterday and, and and a good little series. He's got a little bit of a different approach um, than uh, you know some guys like, uh, say, like Scott of Modern Samurai Project. Um, I highly recommend watching everything that Scott has published on his Modern, Modern Samurai Project uh, YouTube channel. Uh, but again, Aaron Cowan of, of Sage Dynamics has published a lot of really great stuff as well that I think is is helpful for this. Um, so I don't know your thoughts on, on a red dot, Matthew, and, and kind of where are you at in your own, you know, evaluation and, and journey with this sort of thing?
1: Yeah, I think it was Elky who mentioned earlier in the comments that like he kicks himself for not adopting red uh, Red dot earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, I I, I am a. I guess I would be considered like a traditionalist, like the Marine Corps, I shot iron sights. And when, you know, I got out and I heard recruits were qualifying with, you know, with optics and stuff, uh, you know, I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know? <laughs> um, but so I, I'm kind of like, you know, I was at that mindset of like, you know, red dots on a pistol, come on, you know, we can't do it with, with iron sights. What are you kidding me? Um, And, but, and, and as I first tried to shoot a red dot, I, I didn't put any effort into learning how to do it. Right. Like I was just like, okay, if this is so easy, I'm just going to pick it up and be able to shoot and it's going to make me even better. Right. That's the, that's the thing. Um, and it, it it was just, there is a learning curve, especially if you shoot iron sights a lot. So, um, so I, I, am with Elky. I wish I would have put more effort into it, you know, two years ago, but I will say this, that the, the technology or the, the development and the engineering in the optics have come a long way recently um, to the point where there are several different optics that are are acceptable, right? That that don't have these problems of like flickering or the battery or, or getting, you know, moving out of, out of, out of zero or something like that, or glass shattering and, and all this stuff. So, you know, I think as the optic has come along and been more popular, more companies are saying, let's get in on this and let's let's develop a, an optic that is is really good. And, you know, you have those tiers where it's a um, maybe a um, a duty optic, right? Like I, I know, say, Dynamics, you, you mentioned him, uh, uh, does a lot of drop testing and, and really gets into like how durable is this optic, um, and then you can get the, like the mid grade and then maybe, uh, you know, something else, but, um, but yeah, there's, there's options now and there's, mm-hmm. you, you can get in on an optic without having to mill your slide. There's adapter plates and you can kind of start learning. And I think that's one of the big investments is I have this gun that I like shooting. Now I have to mill the slide that costs money. I have to buy an optic that's super expensive and I got to go through this learning curve, I'm not willing to do it, but now most, you know, uh, uh, gun manufacturers are smart. They said, we'll, we'll make the the gun optic ready, you know? And so people can get in on it better. And I think, um, we've mentioned this, you know, yeah. back and forth, I think in, in a year or two, you know, you're going to have more people on optic than on irons alone.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, uh, that wave is coming, uh, I think we're kind of at the at the beginning of that wave. I mean, it's been in, it's been coming for a long time. It's been building, um, but I think that we're just gonna we're just starting to see that really build, and uh, before long, that wave is going to be you know crashing across the industry. Uh, I think the one of the big things that the industry was waiting for was for more gun manufacturers to to bring optics ready guns to the market, and you are seeing pretty much all of the major manufacturers have optic ready guns. Um, some of them are selling them with the optics on the gun that makes it even, even easier, I think for a lot of folks too. So, so, uh, it, it's coming and, uh, you know, I'm not saying everybody's got to shoot red dot, but, but, you know, some of you listening to sound of my voice right now, uh, are sitting there thinking, that's not me. I'm not going to be doing that, but probably a year from now you will be. Cause that, that's, that's how, how much this, uh, this whole thing is changing, how rapidly it is. And like I said, I'm truly convinced it is the superior sighting solution. Uh, Here's the thing. I would rather teach a new shooter on a red dot than I would with iron sights. Because all we have to say to them as far as aiming the gun is red dot on target. Mm -hmm. Like, and you're aimed, right? Um, Whereas, you know, we we have to spend some time as an instructor – working with them on making sure things are lined up properly, you know, knowing where to place that on the site. Oh, do I lollipop the the bullseye of the target with the top of my iron sight or do I intersect it? You know, like there's all these things we get all concerned about, right? With iron sights. It's like, wait a minute, the student's probably having a bigger problem with trigger control, grip issues, you know, flinching and anticipation. And by the way, all those things can be seen more readily. In the dot of the of the optic, uh, like you can actually see if, if you're really paying attention, uh, if you're really aware of what your eyes are seeing, you can see all those deficiencies in shooting in the dot as you're shooting. You can see it when you're dry firing. So much harder to see those things and get feedback. From iron sights. So um, that's why I've, I've, I'm on that red dot train now. And I, re- I kick myself too for not getting on it mm-hmm. sooner. I've been there for sort of for a while. I've been shooting a red dot on my competition pistol for a couple of seasons now. But on the carry side, I've been a little bit slow and uh, I'm not going back. All right. So, uh, uh, you know, why is this in the ultimate concealed carry beginner's guide? Because again, I, I think that it is actually easier to learn how to shoot and shoot well on a red dot than his irons. Now, some will say, like you said, Matthew, you know, some of you old schoolers, well, you got to learn how to use your irons because if you only learn how to use the dot, you won't know how to use irons. Um, I call BS on that, and and, re- and the reason why is because uh, particularly if you have backup irons on your pistol, that they're, they're there, they're there for you to use, um, and and you will. You know, here's the thing. I think shooting with a red dot makes you a better iron sight shooter. Uh, And uh, so, and and not only that, but you'll learn how to shoot and shoot well as far as the trigger control and all that stuff's concerned. And then it's so much easier to add in the iron sights a little later. Okay, now you've got grip down. Now you've got trigger down. Now you've got all these other things, these essentials of shooting, these fundamentals down. Hey, now we're going to give you iron sights put this thing here, put that thing there, line them up, stick them on the target, press trigger. Oh, great. You already know how to press the trigger, right? And so they're not sit, stand, sitting there as an instructor wondering, is this a sighting issue or is this a trigger issue? Is this a grip issue? Um, it's a lot more clear when we're dealing with red dots. Anyway, so I'll get off that soapbox now, but that's, you know, it just, that's where we are. That's where the industry is. That's where the industry is going. And and it's, it's very relevant. So that is why it's in today's episode. Yeah. Matthew, what's next on our list?
1: We've got quick access safes, quick access safes.
0: Yeah. So give, give us a rundown on, on what are we talking about here?
1: Yeah. I I think just generally we can, we can uh, cover this relatively quickly. So uh, concealed carrier, You know, if you're a concealed carrier, you're going to have guns going in and out of your home, right? You're carrying it in um, and you you need to access those safes um, because it it should be, um, let's say, convenient to access the safe, right? Like most of the time we think of like a big gun vault, right? It's in a basement. It's got a ton of tons of guns. It takes 15 minutes to punch in the coat or, you know, wheels and all this stuff. Um, And so when we say, dude, don't leave your gun on your nightstand right? The, your home defense gun on your nightstand. And then you say, well, what am I going to do with it? And you say, put in a, put in a safe. And they say, well, it's going to take me 15 minutes to get the safe. What, what good is the gun? Um, think, you know, that might have been that way 10 years ago, but now we have safes that are now we have biometric safes, electric electronic safes that are either biometric RFID. Um, and, and I know, or, Keypad, right? Like electronic keypad punching. And I know people say electronics can fail. Biometrics aren't always reliable. And that's true, right? That's true. Um, There are also some mechanically activated quick access safes that uses codes like a series of buttons that kind of uh, line up a, you know, a detent inside the lock and, and unlocks it. So it's not mechanical at all. Um, but the, the idea is, is at least in my mind is I would rather have a safe, a gun in a quick access safe in several different locations in my house. So I can get to the gun depending on where I am in the home. Um, and understand that, you know, if it's, if it's a biometric safe or if it's an electronic safe, sure, it can fail. Um, but are the technology right now has gotten to the point where they're, they're pretty darn reliable, right? Um, and if you have an issue where you say, look, I, I understand, but I'm not putting it in the safe period, um, because I need to have access to my gun all the time. And it's gotta be right on the nightstand next to me, or, you know, right on the, uh, on the counter next to me, I would say, carry your gun then like carrying on you all the time. If, if, if you can't put it down at all and, and let me, let me, let me go back and just say, if you have a home where you live by yourself, you don't have any people coming or going or anything like that. Sure. Your, your situation might be a little different than, you know, mine where I have kids or somebody who has uh, younger ones bringing friends over or whatnot. But um, I think the, the quick access safe is, is kind of one of those things where, um, you know, it, it's gotten to the point where there are many options and there are really good, reliable options as well. Don't buy a cheap, you know, safe uh, because it probably will fail, but some of the other uh, decent, decent biometric safes or keypad safes are, are pretty reliable.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I've been on this, you know, train for some time for a number of years. Uh, I've had a, I have had a gun vault, quick access safe since probably two thousand seven would be my guess somewhere around that time frame. I can't believe it's that old. It still works. <clears throat> it's so old. It's back when, the, when it had to, when they used eight double a batteries in the thing instead, now everything just uses like a nine volt. Of course, do you have the ones that plug in and, or even have rechargeable batteries in them? Uh, my gun vault is so old though. It's got eight double a batteries, <laughs> uh, it, which is kind of fun to change out. You know, they recommend once a year. Um, Lately, I you know I've picked up I've got I've got two of these gun box the gun box uh, quick access safes so I've got the Echo model and I can't remember what the other model it's the small one and it's the like regular sized one um, and they they have biometric they have a keypad you know with with Five buttons that you can enter a code, uh, which is kind of worthless actually. The keypad on it's really meant to be as a more as a backup. And then they've got the RFID, so you got a little card or a, a fob or um, I think I've seen where they even and I, I'd like to pick up one of these if I can. Um, I just keep forgetting about it, but I think they actually have a ring that you can mm-hmm. buy that has an RFID chip in it that you can use to access and also a wrist wristband or a little bracelet thing. Um, and, and I've, I'm kind of looking towards one of those types of options because it's something that will be, uh, more, you know, more consistently with me or on me, uh, also allows me to have a little bit more control over it. So because like right now I have, I, I, these two safes each came with like two or three cards and a couple of little fobs and stuff. and like I have you have to control that stuff, you know? Like my kids get a hold of any one of those and and then they're accessing my quick access safe. So I have those locked away. I've got one that I keep on me uh, in my wallet, and i and then I try to make sure that I've got control of that wallet. So um, it's not not ideal, but the RFID works incredibly well, very reliably. The biometrics works pretty good, but every once in a while you get like a false read, you know. So that's not my favorite. Um, but I've been overall pretty impressed. Now, here's the thing. I think the, the simplest solution is is something that has like four buttons. Electronic, yes, I would go electronic. I'll be honest with you. Uh, even over the mechanical ones, I think the electronic – I my electronic ones have all been really good, really reliable. Uh, my my gun vault still working all these years later, uh, very flawlessly. So um, I think the tech is good enough. And and, and uh, here, here's the other thing too. I've got more than one quick access safe by my bedside. Right. If for some reason this one went down, guess what? I've got this other one, and it's also got a fighting pistol in it too. So so um, that's. That's kind of where I'm at. I think everyone should have them. Uh, I know that some you know, will just say that they keep the gun on the nightstand or whatever. Uh, you know what? You, you do you in the case, especially where if you don't have little kids in the home, I, I understand maybe that perspective a little bit. But I still, by and large, think, think it's the more responsible thing to uh, when that gun's not on your person and you want to keep it at the ready, have it in a quick access safe or vault. Agreed. Yeah. All right. What's up next here? We've got let's talk about alcohol, and marijuana or just drugs in general, you know, being impaired, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm going to just give a quick rundown and Matthew chime in um, mostly because I, I, I don't speak too well to the alcohol thing. I don't drink alcohol. Um, I don't do drugs. I don't, I don't do marijuana or anything like that. Obviously it's illegal. Uh, at least as far as doing in my state, it's legal to do it and to do it recreationally, but it's still illegal for me to be a user of marijuana and possess guns. So a bit of a problem there. Um, but I have no interest in marijuana. So that's, that's not an issue for me. So, um, I suspect at some point the laws on this is going to change, uh, just because I think that's the direction the country is moving. Uh, I have no opinion about that necessarily, but um, but you know what? It's illegal to be a user of marijuana and possess or or have guns. All right. So if you want to not lose your Second Amendment rights, I suggest you don't use marijuana. Uh, medically or recreationally uh, with regards to alcohol. I think it's important that we be of sound mind when we are handling dangerous tools and objects like guns. And I would say that extends to prescription drugs, painkillers, et cetera, that might be for a legitimate purpose. But again, I think it's good to be wise and sound in, in, in our use of judgment uh, when we're talking about, again, these uh, guns, which is a dangerous tool. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're always warning people about not using machinery and saws and drills and grinders and driving vehicles and stuff when they're, you know, impaired. So, why would we think that it's acceptable to be impaired even, you know, moderately and uh, be carrying or handling a gun? And that's that is a time we see a lot of accidents occur. I, I can think of several news stories that I've heard or covered over the years where. Uh, a negligent discharge occurs, and it occurs while, while a gun's being handled, passed around, looked at, talked about at a party, and people are impaired due to drinking mm. or drugs. Yeah. I, I, and so, without getting in
1: the – I mean, we could have a whole conversation about the legality of, you know, is it right that, you know, you, you can take – uh, you know, uh, oxycoding, but you can't take, uh, you can't smoke marijuana. Well, I mean, we could talk about all the what's worse and what's better and all this stuff. Right. Um, but I think it boils down kind of like to what you're saying, um, about your own frame of mind when, when, when you're there, um, and, or when you're, you know, you have a firearm in your, in your possession and, and somebody could differentiate that and say, well, what if I want to smoke marijuana? But and while I do that, just like if I'm drinking alcohol, I'm not going to handle my firearm. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, you, technically you can do whatever you want. We're not, you know what I mean? We're not going to tell you how to live your life, yeah. but as it is right now, if you do that, you're really jeopardizing or complicating things as far as gun ownership. And whether or not that's right or wrong, morally, ethically, legally, um, it, it it can really backfire. Because I, I I know a lot of people who have who jumped on the medical marijuana uh, license bandwagon, and we said a long time ago, and I I, I thought a long time ago that eventually, if they don't um, to a national, nationwide, uh, figure this out nationally that states are going to start pulling those those records. And eventually, if you don't think that they're trying to limit people's ability to own firearms, that would be a simple way for government to say, we have a database, right? We have a database of people who are issued marijuana licenses. So therefore, we believe it's reasonable to believe that they're using marijuana. And we don't want people to have guns generally, right? Because we're anti gun. And so we're going to use this as the impetus to take that away even further. So um, just be cautious with all that stuff. I mean, obviously we're, we're preaching safety, but bigger picture type thing until it gets sorted out, you, you, you could potentially be forfeiting your, your gun rights in, in certain mm-hmm. States or and and that's, that's not cool. So.
0: Yep. Yep. Good stuff. All right. So uh, let's turn now to maintenance uh, specifically we titled the short-term and long-term maintenance. Um, I'll try to be brief on this. We are kind of running over time a little bit, but, um, uh, so you and I actually just kind of talked about this in the last episode Mm -hmm. where I gave some of my thoughts on, you know, maintenance as far as like a schedule of sorts to follow when replacing, uh, parts on a, on a pistol in particular, uh, talking about recoil springs, recoil spring assemblies, uh, extractors, extractor springs, striker, striker spring, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, basically, the general rule of thumb I said is, you know what, if you replace your recoil spring uh, every 5,000 rounds in the case of mid-size or full size guns and every 2,500 rounds in the case of micro, compact, subcompact guns, uh, you'll be pretty good in terms of recoil springs on those guns. And if you replace everything else every 10,000 rounds, it's probably a little bit over overly ambitious for some guns in terms of their maintenance cycles and schedules. Uh, But, but there are some manufacturers I've seen that recommend striker replacement or extractor replacement as as early as 10,000 rounds. Um, You know, others that are are quite a bit longer than that. Um, So like like I said, as a general rule of thumb, you do that every 10,000 rounds, you you should have nothing to worry about. You'll have a nice brand brand new striker, brand new extractor all that stuff, every 10,000 rounds, you'll be good to go. Right. Um, So that's my thought on terms of like the, the, the long-term stuff. Uh, People have probably heard me talk about the short-term stuff. We're talking about cleaning the gun, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, Lubrication. Uh, I am, I am terrible at cleaning my guns. I'll be honest. Uh, And and I don't have a problem with that. Okay. And, And so, you know, as, as I have shot, Many, many, many thousands of rounds now. I've been very blessed to be able to shoot as much as I have shot in the last, you know, five, six, seven, eight years. Um, I've learned that cleanliness is not nearly as important as lubrication. Uh, if you never clean a handgun, but you lubricate it every 500 rounds, most quality handguns will go dang near indefinitely. All right. It may get really nasty and gross and disgusting inside, but as long as the important operational components are lubricated, it'll pretty much run. All right. I'm not saying it's ideal, um, but I would guess that most of my guns get cleaned every two to three thousand rounds, sometimes a little bit more. Boy, my competition pistol last year, boy, it got really bad. I even went through the first day of uh, the bigger circle class with Rob Latham, and Mike Seeklander, and I hadn't cleaned my competition gun like all season. And I went through that first day and I didn't have any problems, but I was back at the hotel and it's one of those things, you know, you're away from home, you're taking this class, you got nothing better to do. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe I should have a look at my gun. And so I start taking it apart. I'm like, man, this thing is filthy. <laughs> it probably had, it wouldn't surprise me if it had six, seven, eight thousand rounds on it since I had cleaned it last, you know, but, but I had been consistent in my application of lubricant. Okay. I'm um, not going to go into the specifics of grease versus oil or anything like that. Most of the time I use oil though, uh, because it's convenient and it's easy to work with. So, uh, I would say that a good rule of thumb is lubricating your gun every 500 rounds. I've certainly had guns that i Went far far longer than that, and they still ran fine. But I think lubricating every five hundred rounds, you're you're in pretty good shape. So I know some of you out there, you know, go to the range, you shoot, you come back, and you're religious about cleaning your gun every, after every range trip. Good on you. You know that's that's great. It's not necessary, and, and to have that gun run, all right, it's not. So um, that's that's just my opinion. Okay, and, and I know I'm not alone in that. Like John Korea talks about this all the time on on his own personal page and and even on his YouTube channel that uh, you know like right right now the gun I'm carrying is probably dirty some of you are like <gasps> um, but it's well lubricated all right so my carry guns I do try to clean a little bit more frequently but I shoot frequently enough too that it's it's such a burden like as as much as I sometimes will shoot now lately not as much you know ammo is being a little bit tricky to get stuff but 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 i did shoot you know a, a big match a couple weeks ago um you know but there's been times where if i was religiously cleaning after every range trip uh, man i would spent a lot of time cleaning guns and not time doing dry fire which was infinitely more important for me i would say
1: yeah i agree i can't i, I can't really add anything else um Yeah, there's nothing wrong with cleaning your gun, but I think sometimes we can get too anal about it. And, you know, um, the guns, guns will run, (laughs) they'll run, you put lube them up and they'll run for a long time, a a decent, you know, a a good quality gun. So, um,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, tell us kind of, do you have a sort of schedule at all or what's your typical?
1: No, I, 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 I'm kind of on the same boat as you is a couple thousand rounds. I might clean it. Um, if I'm at a class, I'll clean it, you know, because exactly like you said, I don't go out and party afterwards, you know. So, um, but yeah, and, and it's hard because especially if you shoot multiple guns or you have um a lot a lot of guns or you're you are you are training a lot, it's hard to find time to, to sit down and clean your guns. So um, you know, I, I I agree. And I I for me, and I'll just throw this out for as far as product wise, um, I like grease a little bit better than oil just because it stays more where I want it than oil that kind of seeps and gets in places that I might not want it. So that's just my, you know, I'll just throw that in. I know you, you, you said you weren't getting involved in the the products, but it, w- my preference would be grease rather than, or, a, or, a you know, a, a as far as a lubricant. Um, so just my, my two cents.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, again, and I totally, I agree with what uh, uh, the grease. Yeah. has advantages in in that, in that um, context um, for, for me, oil is just so convenient. Yeah. Is, you know, mm-hmm. so yep. 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 If, if, if you're going to put a gun away for a long period of time, I, I think grease is probably the way to go. Uh, because if you, particularly if a gun's sitting in an upright configuration, like a rifle, all that oil will just run out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of you've, I'm sure experienced that and had a pool of oil at the bottom of your safe. Um, but if a gun's getting used regularly and I'm frequently re lubricating it, then I'm probably just using oil. Just me. Anyway. All right. So, um, one last thing here, this is our final thing. Uh couple episodes or you know in our I think actually our last ultimate concealed carry beginners guide we talked about um, uh, clips for beltless carry and we mentioned ulti clip as being an option and and I still stand by that as long as you make sure that that ulti clip is functioning well Um, because I have seen them particularly like the the hinges on them get spread a little bit and then they can actually come apart and so they can fail you in that way so so be sure that you're inspecting and, and making sure those old clips are in good uh, functioning order regularly. Um, but, and, and I don't know if we mentioned it in that episode or not. I have no recollection of it. I know I've probably mentioned it other times in the podcast that there's some uh, products like the discrete carry concepts clips, DCC clips. They have a number of different options, different versions for different applications. Uh, DCC clips are legit. They are they are awesome. Um, they're strong and they are super grippy, and uh, so those those actually can also be a good option for beltless uh, concealed carry uh, if you're in that kind of situation, right? Um, but one thing I want to mention, and Matthew, you can you can touch on this a little bit more. Um, but this is a relatively new product since we did the last. Uh, beginner's guide episode. Uh, Mm -hmm. This didn't exist. And I want to just touch on this, that a lot of times beginning concealed carriers will sometimes buy not always the the greatest holsters kind of cheap holsters. I know because I did that. I made those mistakes And, and, and sometimes the holsters aren't necessarily bad, but it's sort of the means by which they attach to your body or to your clothes or your belt. That is the weak point of the holster and what I'm getting at is those cheap—they're actually called foamy clips. It stands for fold over um, something injected. I don't know. It's a—you it, it, know—they're—they're—they're they're, they're the everybody's seen them on a holster or seen them on a holster ad. They're the black plastic clips that are very common on holsters. And, and when I see them actually on a holster, to me, that's a sign I'm to run away because if a company uses those cheap foamy clips, I'm not interested in their holster um, because it's a. Let's just say that I've seen holsters with that foamy clip pop off people's belts when they're trying to draw their gun many times. Just saw it a few weeks back uh, again in a class. So um, here's what's cool. Discrete Carry Concepts in the last few months released a new product, a new clip option that is intended to actually be a replacement option. For those foamy clips, and that is fantastic, Matthew. You've got one. Tell us what the, what the monoblock is.
1: Yeah, so it's called the monoblock, and I'll, for you guys watching, I'll show you what it is. It's it's this right here. So, it, you know, it has those two holes, just like the foamy clip. It would mount. And it has the same hole pattern, so you can replace the foamy clip with this, and it's a roughly the same size, an inch and a half belt. It'll fit on an inch and a half belt. Um, but the difference is, if you look at the bottom, it has these little tangs that kind of hook, and they actually hook underneath the belt. And it's metal; it's it's a strong metal. Um, and it's then it flares steel. out here. Yeah. Yep. And you can it, it flares out here, so you can get it on and off your belt. But once you clip this on, it rides up under uh, under to the belt, and the clip it's it's incredibly. Uh, positive retention on the belt. Like y- y- just this little clip on the bottom, if you took that clip away, it w- it would be a terrible clip. Like it would just, the clip would come off, but just putting that on, is in- it makes it incredibly strong and it stays on the belt. So if you have those plastic clips, this is a simple way to uh, really upgrade the, the, the holster.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. So check out the DCC monoblock to... Instantly upgrade your holster if it uses one of those single clip designs like that. And, again, you can check out their whole line of products. Uh, You can just go to discretecarryconcepts.com. You can see all their different clip options, and you you can actually replace um, any number of hardware uh, pieces on your holsters uh, to make your holster a little bit better, stronger. Because it's really important, I think, that the job of a holster to not just hold the gun, protect the gun, keep the trigger from being activated. Um, but, it, it, but to also retain it as far as it's staying on your body, on your belt or on your waistline. It's a big problem when the, the actually I just saw it in a, in a Facebook group yesterday, somebody shared the story. They were getting out of their pickup and their gun holster, everything fell out of their waistband. Mm-hmm. And I just commented, I said, I actually shared a photo of the foamy clips. I said, I'll bet your holster had one of these clips. And he's like, yep (laughs) because like i know been there done that seen that okay so um yeah get get a good you know regardless of the holster using use really really good quality securement options uh and discrete carry concepts are just one really good quality option to make sure your stuff stays put on your waistband yes sir Well, folks, um, that wraps up um, all the items we had to discuss in this Ultimate Concealed Carry Beginner's Guide. Uh, Before we go, we got to do a prize giveaway. Matthew will start pulling that up for us, the weekly podcast prize. Uh, While he's pulling that up, I'll just mention one last call for our episode sponsors today. We had the new Desert Sage Color option from EDC Belt Company's The Foundation Belt my belt of choice for EDC use. I think the desert sage color is awesome. I think it goes very nicely with some of my pant and short options. Uh, I still wear the black one as well. Uh, In fact, I think I'm wearing the black one today, but uh, I'm really excited about this new desert sage color. So guys, check it out. concealcarry.com forward slash foundation belt. And then also the new combo pack of eye and ear protection We've got the SSP Eyewear glasses and the electronic hearing protection from Allen Company, uh, their new Shockwave Ear Pro. You can get that combo pack for like $49. bucks. That is a heck of a value to get really great electronic hearing protection and great quality eye protection for the range. So check out the new combo pack of Eye Pro and Ear Pro at concealedcarry.com forward slash PPE. Combo pack. Matthew, who, well, first of all, what are we giving away today?
1: We're giving away fighting from cover online uh, access to the uh, fighting from cover course.
0: Awesome. And what are we giving away next week?
1: Next week is the concealed carry.com tactical pen.
0: Cool. Yeah. So, you know what? I'm going to sweeten the deal. Mm. Okay. First time ever. I'm not authorized to do this, but I don't care. I'm calling the shots uh, we just received a shipment of new, what are you doing? I'm getting interrupted by somebody over here. Get out of here. <laughs> That's David, by the way, say hello, David. Hello. <laughs> there he is. Um, so we, uh, we just got a shipment of new concealed patches. Super excited about these. We worked on the design a while ago and, uh, it, it's got our, our, are are saying that we end every episode with right train right train often and train safe so you can fight a hard fight fast to fight true so brand new and i if i was thinking about this sooner i would have brought one with me but uh the new concealcarry.com patch tell you what with that tactical pen we'll throw one of those in as well neat so make sure you sign up for this week's coming giveaway concealed carry.com forward slash podcast prize because to my knowledge that's the only and first place you can get one of these patches so lucky you to whoever is the winner next week this week though is getting the fighting from cover streaming video course picking a winner drum roll here we go
1: Winner only provided his first name and it's Todd. So we will send Todd, no unknown last name, an email. Um, Congratulations, Todd, unknown last name.
0: Nice. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, congrats, Todd, on winning the Fighting for Cover streaming course. So with that, we're going to let you go because we are over time. And so until next time, it'll be Thursday this week. Another great episode from the concealed carry podcast we'll see you then but until then train often train right train right train often and train safe so you can fight hard fight fast and fight true take care